Welcome to the Physician's Financial Checkup Podcast, where we discuss the financial challenges and opportunities facing medical professionals. In this podcast, we'll discuss a variety of financial topics that are important to physicians, such as retirement planning, investing, and estate planning. We'll also interview experts in the financial services industry to get their insights on these topics. If you're a physician or a spouse of a physician, I encourage you to listen to this podcast. We will provide you with the information you need to make sound financial decisions and achieve your financial goals. Here's your host, Brent Bowden, a financial coach and certified financial planning advisor with over 15 years of experience helping medical professionals achieve their financial goals. To learn more about Brent Bowden and his services, visit brentbowden.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited on today's episode to bring you a guest speaker and expert who's going to discuss an awesome strategy to make your income more efficient that promises to make your income work smarter, not harder. He's a renowned financial educator, speaker with 6.2 million views on his TED Talk and the author of four different books with a mission to help people rethink their relationship with money and take control of their financial destinies. I am thrilled to introduce to you Adam Carroll, the mind behind the revolutionary shred method. With over two decades of experience in the field, Adam has inspired countless individuals to optimize their income streams and create a life of abundance. Check out the show notes for more information on where to find Adam. His books and his TED Talk will all be linked there. But without further ado, let's dive into our conversation with the man who's changing the way we think about income, Adam Carroll. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to see where our convo goes and and uh, help your audience as much as possible. Looking forward to it. So I always like to start out. Just tell me a little bit about yourself. What have you done? How did you get here? And and where are we going to go? Yeah, the what have I done is kind of an interesting list. And a lot of people will say, "What is it you do exactly?" And the best way for me to answer that question, Brent, is I'm I've been a bit of a mediapreneur for a long time. And by that, I mean, I've created content in the way of books, podcasts, documentaries, and then turned around and marketed and sold those to various groups. Um, Candidly, I've been a professional speaker for 20 years, so made my living opening my mouth and telling stories to people, which has been a great gig. And, um, And deep down, one of the things that I think that I've done probably more than anything is I've been a student of money and have been in pursuit of the mastery of money for a very long time. Um, and the, the way I would describe that is, you know, mastery is like a, a mountain that has no peak. So I just keep climbing and climbing and climbing, learning more, realizing how little I know along the way. And the more I've studied, the more I want to share it with other people. And so my mediapreneur ventures are typically around money, financial education, financial freedom, and the like. Fantastic. So on your money journey, what did that look like kind of growing up? Did you have any kind of financial literacy background or is this something that just started to enjoy and wanted to learn more about it? I, I honestly did. I mean, I loved money. I was an entrepreneur from the get-go. Um, I think my first entrepreneurial venture was I made a chocolate cake you know, on the side of a Hershey's cocoa can. No question with my parents' help, but I made it, frosted it. And the neighbor, I'm sure, was just being kind and said, oh, wow, that's wonderful. I would love a cake like that. And she said, I might even buy a cake like that. And I'm sure it was just her, you know, uh, 
pleasing a, a seven, seven or eight year old. And I was like, well, I'll sell you one, you know, I'll make one for you and sell it to you. So I think I sold two cakes before my cake business was completely up and gone. Um, but I made $14 in profit and I thought I had hit the jackpot at that age. So I've loved entrepreneurship. I grew up in a family where my dad talked about investing, but it was sort of superlatives. Like you should invest in mutual funds. You should save some of your money. You know, it wasn't anything really concrete, but I credit my dad for giving me an interest in the market at the very least. He was not an entrepreneur, but I also watched him uh, go through a layoff and several job changes, which I think for me was, was kind of an impetus to decide that I was going to be a self-employed person for most of my life. Um, and, you know, I was, I was a debt statistic out of college. I had $30,000 plus in student loans. I had eight grand in credit card debt. Um, you know, I had been a rich college kid. And then I quickly became a broke professional. And it was there that I really figured out, I got to get my act together or this, you know, this whole thing could go south. Um, and from there, uh, you know, it, my love of education and particularly around the study of money took off. So I, I think uh, we've talked about this a little bit. Your wife kind of supported you early on. Uh, my wife is an engineer. And so same situation. Yeah. You, know, you get into the finance industry, uh, you generally are not making a, a lot. Right, it's, right. Uh, kind of eat what you kill. So, totally. tell me about kind of that experience. How do you all work together to to move forward? Yeah, well, she doesn't like it when I say this, but she was my sugar mama for a while. You know, I mean, she was making the dough, and I was, um, I was trying to make the dough and learning what to do with the dough. Uh, she was my wife's a nurse, has been a nurse for you know the the extent of our marriage, and um, that's a very stable job. So she had good income, you know, in that gig. And when I started speaking, there were many, many months and maybe even years where she was like, dude, are we going to get paid this month or what's, you know, what's, what's happening? And we laugh about it now because there was a period of time where, you know, I would have feast and famine. I would have months where I'd done a ton of gigs and made good money. And then somewhere it was like 60 to 45 to 60 days of nothing. And um, I'm sure some of your listeners can, can relate to this where, you know, you have these periods of what feels like riches and then periods that feels like a drought. Um, and what we learned over time was the goal really is to smooth out your income. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a self-employed business owner or you're a, a W-2 employee, the goal really is to get to a point where you know how much is going, coming in, you know how much is going out. Hopefully there are big chunks coming in from time to time. Um, but for the most part, the lesson that I learned around that, that we learned together was to live on one income or less. And if you can live on one income or less, you know, all, all manner of calamity would have to happen for two people to lose their job simultaneously. And, um, and so we just consciously kept kind of forcing our expenses down, not living like paupers by any means, but just cutting out the unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And being able to put all of the rest, all the surplus to work. And that's really led us to where we're at today, which is, you know, near financial freedom. So obviously, uh, you know, in the medical profession space, a lot of people are in that situation getting out of college yep. where they've got, you know, student loan debt, uh, might be looking for that first house or they, they've recently purchased that, probably some credit card debt as well, uh, yep. just from kind of time and income level at that point. So what things did you all do to be able to, to knock that down? And, and what's that look like? Well, first and foremost, Brent, we made a really conscious decision. 
And that was that we were not going to live with debt. Um, I had grown up in a household where I didn't know it, but my parents spent a lot of money on credit cards and then, and then expected the Christmas bonus to come at the end of the year to take care of it. And we both agreed that, Hey, this, this does not have a place in our world because we wanted to raise, we wanted to raise a family, but certainly be, be a married couple that lived differently than either of our parents did not nothing against how they lived. It was just, we wanted a level of freedom and flexibility around money that our decisions were going to support. And so for your listeners, if they're coming out with significant student loans, some credit card debt, obviously you've gone through residency, which is, you know, trying to live on 40 or $45,000 a year or whatever it is today. Um, it's really tough to, to make a go of that. Um, but I would give the same advice to your listeners that I, that I gave to, you know, young professionals as soon as they had graduated, which was if you do for two years, what most people won't do, you can do for the rest of your life, what most people can't do. And so most doctors, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush, but they come out and it's 10 years removed from everyone else because of the amount of schooling and um, obviously the, the work they have to do in residency. Um, so you feel like you're behind already. And I just want to buy the, I just want to get the house. I want to get the car. I want to get the things that I've seen all my friends have. But if you can delay that for a couple of years or tamp it down, suppress it just a bit, it's amazing how much more you can have in your life at a, in short order. Um, and so, you know, point blank to your question, I would say, let's go after the debt. We're going to go after high interest debt. We're going to knock it down. We're going to tackle student loans, maybe not in force in mass, but we're going to have a really cohesive strategy to get rid of it, as opposed to what I think a lot of people do, which is I'm going to kick the can down the road. I'll pay my minimums. It'll get all forgiven in 20 years anyway. And by that point in time, you've probably paid two, two times at least what you borrowed. Mm -hmm. And that's money, that, that's wealth that could have been, you know, going to your family, uh, you know, your family wealth building. So that's candidly, that's the advice I would give. We're going to go after the debt head first. So, so one of the things, obviously, to be able to do that is a lot of our residents probably are on some sort of budget already. Yep. Uh, but knowing exactly where your expenses go, what's that look like? And having a very disciplined approach to paying off debt has uh, got to be kind of the precursor to yep. then know how to tackle those debts. Totally. So, you know, this is one of the things that we talk a lot about is just being very responsible with your budget. I think exactly what you, you mentioned, you know, what do you need? Uh, yep. And those needs are, are paramount. Take care of those. But then all the excess is how are we going to utilize that uh, for the long term to make up some of that time that you've lost? Yeah. So do you have any suggestions as far as, you know, let's say we've got a budget in place, you know, we're disciplined on that approach and we really want to get some of those debts paid down. Obviously, we want to you know, have our emergency fund. I kind of put that with the, the budgeting standpoint. Uh, yep. But where do we go from there to get some of that debt paid off, in your opinion? Yeah. I heard one of your episodes on you know, the debt snowball versus the debt avalanche. And my wife and I, we went after our debts using the debt snowball method and found great success in it. Um, obviously, it's a little bit different. And you can go back. I highly recommend you listen to Brent's show on the avalanche versus the snowball method. Um, we use the snowball method because of the psychological benefit that was there. We're, we're, we had it all on our refrigerator. So every debt lined out, how much do we owe? What was the minimum payment? What was the interest rate? And, and every better than none, right? But, yeah, one the, totally. One approach is better than not taking one at all. Totally, totally. And I think that 
you know, for most for most consumers that are that are dealing with debt, there is a bit of a I don't even want to look at it approach. And we wanted to look at it. It was mm-hmm. on a refrigerator. Every time I went to get anything in the fridge, I saw what we owed. So there was this motivation to to knock it down. And then every time we paid off a debt, we would take a big red Sharpie and we would line out that debt. And there was this feeling of satisfaction of knocking those debts out one at a time. The running joke was we would, as soon as we paid off one of those debts, we for for a week maybe we would drink twelve dollar bottle of wine instead of three dollar <laughs> bottles of wine, uh, you know, just to celebrate. And then we go right back to paying off the debt again. And um, so, you know, if if I were to tell people what is the strategy, it's it's easy to simplify things to saying, hey, live on the 50, 30, 20 plan as an example, right? 50% are needs, 30% are wants, 20% is is for you to either pay off debt or save. Um, I would recommend for a physician just getting started, set a number in your mind, like I am going to live on 60% or 70% of whatever I make. And the rest all goes to knocking out that debt. Mm-hmm. Because then what you've done is you've created this boundary around your income and it's your boundary. It's like having a fenced in backyard. You can go outside the fence from time to time, but for the most part, let's just stay within that fenced in backyard and anything extra goes to building your wealth, either decreasing debt or increasing your, your asset base. Um, And for us, the game was, okay, let's live on 70. Actually, could we live on 60? How about 50? Could we, could we live on 50? Could we live on 40? And what's really cool is you get to a point where you can live on about 30% of what you make because your expenses are driven down to a point that they're kind of ridiculous, right? But then all the money that you're making is going to building your wealth in short order. And I'd be curious your take on this, but how many 50 or 55 or 60-year-old physicians get to that point, let's say 50-year-old, and they go, gosh, I have not done a good job of socking enough away to support the lifestyle I've grown accustomed to. What's what's been your experience on that? Yeah, I think the hard part is, you know, if you live it up, you know, and you're really kind of spending, say, 50, 60, 70 percent of your income, you get to a point where you probably haven't saved enough to continue that. And so yeah. you're either going to have to work for the rest of your life and maybe you love to work. I think there's a very big difference in having to work and loving to work. Yes. And so, you know, I've run into several clients that are getting into that, you know, I'm 10 years from retirement, uh, but I don't have enough. Yeah. And it's a very uphill battle to be able to do that for compounding interest sake, right? Yeah. You you can't save yourself out of it. And so it's one of the things we we talk about is saving early. Uh, Give time, which is our most valuable asset, the ability to grow. And if you don't do that, then it's very difficult to, to catch up. And so you're either going to have to lower your ability to to live the lifestyle you want, or you're just going to have to save out the wazoo. And you, most people can't do that. And so it's very difficult uh, to make up the difference. So, you know, I, I think you're right on board is you got to be saving over time as much yeah. as you can, but still enjoying the lifestyle that you want as well. And so yeah. there's an equal balance and everybody has to find exactly what that is for themselves. But yeah. when do you want that last day? We always talk about the last Friday, right? I want to know that my last Friday is closer to me now than it is farther away. Now, I will probably continue to work. I I love what I do. Yeah, right. But waking up that Friday and being like, you know what? I don't have to work anymore. And my investments and 
you know, things have, will sustain our family. Yep. It's a fantastic feeling that takes the stress away. No doubt. And I think that's one of the things we, I've heard you talk about before as well is, you know, kind of your five values. Yes. Uh, so I'm big on behavioral values and behavioral finance and how that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And knowing what those goals are for you kind of helps drive that train. No so doubt. These are where I'm going to. And, and freedom and flexibility, you know, are a couple that I certainly love and obviously family time, but uh, it's always interesting to be able to drive toward those. Yeah. We have, um, on that note, we have a, a couple of clients who are surgeons and one in particular had some back issues and was, was laid up for the better part of two months, three months, maybe even. And dur during that time, there was no income. And so he incurred some debt because the living expenses were higher than normal. There weren't any um, passive income streams coming in outside of just what he was making, selling his time for money. And I think that's the other key to this is that I love that idea your last Friday and how amazing would it be if all the way leading up to that last Friday, your income just kept growing, whether you were working harder or not, because your, your money is working hard for you and assets that are producing you know, actual cash flow that you can access on a monthly basis. Yep. I think for a lot of people too, is, you know, the love would be, do I have more passive income than what I create in my day to day? Yep. You have to start somewhere though, right? And it's a yep. lot easier to start when you have that extra income. So you're either living well below your means or you're out saving kind of what you can. So indeed, let's, let's say we're, you know, fast forward a couple of years uh, after residency and we we're getting ready to buy a house. Yep. And how, you know, we probably still have student debt. We've tried to chunk yep. it away. We may have done a good job, but we've got student debt. We're buying a house, you know, probably have kids at this point. What does that look like? And how can we kind of continue to pay that down, even though we're taking on a mortgage? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think that, that buying a home, uh, and, and I think statistics play this out, is one of the indicators of wealth building, of families who have built wealth, they own their home. Whether they own it free and clear or they, they're buying it, you know, folks who are, who are homeowners generally have a higher amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. And the difference, the differentiator, I think, between what we recommend our clients do in the shred method and what maybe a typical consumer would do, a doctor that just bought a home, is a doctor might go put three and a half or five or 10 or 20% down on their, you know, their dream home. Let's call it a million dollar property. They put, managed to, to stockpile 200 grand or got, gift or, you know, somehow they, they made it happen, uh, a five ten eighty kind of deal, you know, five, uh, 5% down, um, or sorry, five fifteen eighty fifteen percent 15% on the second note, 80% on a conventional mortgage, whatever it looks like. Um, what most doctors will do is they'll just make minimum payments and, and maybe they'll pay a little extra. I send two, 300, $500 extra a month just so I can knock it down sooner. And that's great. That's, that's, you know, one of those strategies that will get you from a 30 year fix down to maybe a 24 or 22 year mortgage, right? Well, what we recommend with the shred method is you actually want to leverage as much of the discretionary income as humanly possible. And so what we're coaching someone who's a few years out of residency, buys a home, still paying off student loan debt is let's figure out how we can use that home actually as an asset almost as a bank itself, yep. where we're going to start really building equity quickly in the home, which will also allow you to write significant checks to the student loan balance, knocking it down surreptitiously um, and get it to a point where it's at zero and then going 
really hard towards the house. And while you're doing that, the goal is that you're building equity, you're owning more and more and more of your income because more of your payments going to principal every month. Mm -hmm. And at some point we're taking that equity and we're starting to use it very strategically in investments. It could be life insurance, you know, the, the LERP, the life insurance retirement plan that you talk about. Some people may have heard it referred to as infinite banking. Um, but the idea is we want to create the highest level of efficiency with our income as humanly possible. And to, to describe that just a bit, Brent, I want you to imagine that if you were to go to the grocery store in the morning on, on a Friday, let's say, and you left at eight o'clock in the morning to go to the grocery store, pick up some supplies for the day, you came back home knowing you were going to go to the post office at two or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Would you leave your car idling in your driveway all day? No way. Why wouldn't you? You'd use a, a bunch of gas. Not to mention the environmental issues. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's inefficient on gas, inefficient to the environment, hard on your engine, yeah. right? all of the above. And yet what, what doctors will do is they'll make money every two weeks, every month, however they're paid by their practice. Maybe it's every week. The money goes into checking. And it sits there and it sits there for days or weeks or sometimes months on end, depending on how much people feel like they need to have on set aside. And we would, we would draw a comparison to your cars just idling in your driveway while the money's sitting in checking, doing nothing. Uh, furthermore, if there's money in checking and for your listeners, maybe you've married someone who's like, no, we're good. We have money in the checkbook. Let's go spend, right? You're actually better off making it look like you have less in that account on a regular basis. You're not going to feel like you're broke, but the goal is to make it feel like, no, we're being efficient with this money. Um, and this is, this is pretty contrarian to how most people work in society because banks have taught us how to function within their, their environment. And it's a great business model for them. It doesn't really work that efficiently for us, but it works great for them. As a reformed banker, I, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. bank wealth management and uh you know it, it, it's tough to, there was nowhere to park money for clients that could get any type of interest rate yeah and the the high interest accounts which I, i'm a big advocate for your emergency savings yeah uh, the downside is that most of those are limited transactions right right so you're not going to be able to get it so your daily checking accounts you might you know, even right now with interest rates up you might get 50 basis points and it's not yeah. going to to make any money on it totally Totally. And, and, you know, your comment about there's nowhere to park this money to get decent returns. I, I took a drive yesterday and I, I need to clock exactly how far it is, but I think it's probably no more than two miles. And there are 12 financial institutions in my small suburb on, on a two mile stretch. And these are like 10, $15 million buildings that they're building. Yep. And they keep putting them up about every, I don't know, half a mile. They'll just put another one. And then across the street, someone will go in because they, they want to compete with that market. And as I drive down and I see all these banks, um, and by the way, it's like banks, oil change places, and nail salons. I don't yeah. know if this is the, the trifecta of you know, development <laughs> in small towns now. There's got to be a massage parlor in there, right? There's a massage parlor there somewhere for sure. Um, but I look at the banks especially, and, and it causes me to question, man, are we challenging the fact not not to vilify them because they have a business model and it works, but man, let's look closely at how their model works, that you can build that many banks in that short of a span with a, not a, not a sprawling population, mm -hmm. 
and they're all profitable. Yep. And it, it calls into question, like, are we playing their game or are they just, are we just cogs in their game, right? Cogs in their wheel. Yeah, as, as a, a student of history, you know, banks are definitely interesting. Uh, you know, the business model has worked well, but it, there's other ways, I think, to challenge it. And that's one of the things that, that we talk a lot about on this podcast is conventional thinking won't get you to the wealth building that you're trying to make. Right. Uh, and so you got to think a little bit outside the box, both from, you know, how you have a relationship with money. What are your yep. goals? What are you trying to achieve? And then what ways can you get there? Uh, and all of those kind of need a little bit of new thinking, I think. And yeah. so being able to challenge that, what would your recommendation be to help challenge? You know, where do we, where do we put money and how do we uh, kind of spend that to, to make ourselves more? Yeah. I, t I tend to try and simplify every concept. Um, and a good friend of mine one time said, dumb everything down to a fifth grade level. People will get it. You know, Hey, are you smarter but, than a fifth grader? That's right. That's right. And I hope I am most of the time, <laughs> most days. Uh, the simplest way to describe wealth building is this. If you can create a spread between what you make and what you spend for as long as humanly possible, you will create wealth. That's, that's the bare bones, basic minimum advice I give people is you have to get better at making more than you spend period. That's yeah. step number one. Step number two is how do you create efficiency with the money that you have left over so that it's giving you the biggest bang for your buck? It's, it's actually creating wealth, not just sitting in an account making 50 bips, right? And um, so that calls into question this idea of uh, debt is normal, natural, and good. And in our society, we believe, oh, you want a house? Go get a mortgage on a house. And how long are you going to have it? 30 years. Um, if you want a car? get a, a loan on a car. How long are you going to have it? As long as I can, seven years, eight years. Elon Musk famously now is trying to push 10-year Tesla notes um, and be so that people can afford to buy the car, right? 10 years over. And so what we started doing was we started questioning, do we really want to be in debt? Does the debt get us closer to what we want? Or are we better off minimizing our debt, minimizing our tax liability, uh, which the two greatest expenses we have in life are taxes and the interest expense on debt. So if we do a good job of minimizing both of those, then wealth building actually should be relatively easy. And then the goal should just be buy really great businesses, put money in funds that you know right now are depressed, but will one day go up. Uh, you know, uh, Phil Town is an author who I love to follow. He's a brilliant guy. In his book, Rule One Investing, he said, if you can buy a dollar for 50 cents, you'll never lose money. Yep. And so we're constantly on the lookout for where are the dollars out there that are on sale for 50 cents. Um, so to that end, Brent, you know, one of the things that we've done with our kids even is they want to make money. And, they, and from the time they were teens and preteens, they wanted to make money. And I'd give them 20 bucks and say, let's go shopping. We're going to the, to the uh, uh, garage sales in our area. And I want you each to buy a piece of furniture or something that you think you can clean up, fix up, take photos of, write a flowery description and sell it on uh, Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. And what we would do is we'd take a $20 end table and turn it into a $40 or $50 end table. And my kids learn you can buy a dollar for 50 cents. You just have to be on the lookout for it. Yep. And the same is true in the market, real estate, stocks and bonds, et cetera. Is Craigslist still around? Craigslist is still a thing. And believe it or not, it works. Really? I got kicked off of Facebook a couple of years ago 
nothing of my own doing. I, sh I assure you, I was, I think I was hacked. Um, but I went to Craigslist and started selling stuff and it, and it still works. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So I know one of the things that you've talked about in the shred method is the difference between kind of simple and compound interest. Yep. Just kind of explain that on a fifth grade level and yep. how do you use that to your advantage kind of yeah. paying off debt? Well, and, and sometimes simple and amortized debt is the way I like to describe them. Um, cause a mortgage really isn't compounded. It's, it is simple interest, but amortized over a very long period of time with a big balance. Um, but the way I like to describe this at the fifth grade level is if you imagine, a, a the amortization table of a, of, of a 30 year fixed mortgage and you imagine it visually, it looks like a waterfall. And it's, it's slow and steady at the beginning, and then it kind of crests and, and falls down steeply towards the end. If you were to take a traffic light and you turn it on its side, the first 10 years of a 30-year fixed mortgage are the red light. Not much goes to principal. It's all going to interest. The second 10 years is yellow. Some, some's going to principal, a little bit more, month after month after month, but still most, mostly going to interest. And the last 10 years is green light, meaning that's when you really get the massive payoff of your mortgage. And if you were to take any of your listeners' homes and you said, well, how long do you intend to be here? And they go, I don't know, seven years, 10 years. And in those seven to 10 years, you make your minimum monthly payment dutifully. Maybe you refinance once or twice in the midst of that. You will always be in red light territory. Meaning all of that money you're sending in is going to the banker. It's not going to your wealth building. It's certainly not going to equity. It's just going to build the $10 million buildings that are cropping, you know, cropping up all around me. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to figure out how do we leverage simple interest? And, and what I'm saying is you know, using some of that discretionary income that you have left over every month, but maybe using it a month or two in advance you know, borrowing from future uh, discretionary income, paying simple interest on that to the tune of dollars or tens of dollars, but leveraging that large sum of money against your long-term amortized debt, like your student loan and your mortgage. And what will happen is instead of making those minimum payments and, you know, getting a, 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 a pittance credited towards the balance and most of it towards interest, you drop $5,000 on a student loan to principal only, you now have $5,000 left to pay, right? And it may take, it could have taken you months or years to get that principal pay down if you keep making your minimum monthly payment because your student loans typically are amortized over 25 or 30 years. So what we're doing is we're leveraging simple interest, but we're applying it against that long-term amortized debt. And the end result is you will end up saving hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you have hundreds of thousands borrowed against a home or student loans at anywhere from three to 7%. And so by using that home equity line, which some banks, there are a few out there, got to be cautious of, I think that that still do compound daily. Um, yep. A lot of those are simple, especially yep. if you go with some of the credit unions and things like that, they, they yep. don't change kind of the old school way of doing it. But that's right. Knowing exactly how your loan works, I think is important as well. Um, but if you're using a simple interest line, then how should that look kind of logistically? So I'm getting paid every two weeks yep. um, using this home equity line to help pay down some of the debt on a simple interest standpoint. 
What does that yep. look like in practice? Well, the shred method is really, it's based on a piece of software that does all the calculations for you. It's, it's uh, running a number of complex algorithms in the background, but logistically what it looks like is your income gets deposited just as normal into checking more than likely, but immediately we're going to kick that check, that, that amount, that deposit over to the line of credit. And in effect, what you're going to end up with is a credit, uh, excuse me, a checking account that only has a smattering in it. It's going to have somewhere between maybe $500, $1,000 just to, to have a safety net in there. Everything else, everything else that you're making, everything that's coming through, gets kicked over to the line of credit. When bills come due, then we'll pay those out of the line of credit, possibly by moving money back over to checking and then paying it out. Um, but for most of our clients, everything that they pay goes on a credit card every single month. And at the end of the month, plus maybe a grace period of 10 or 15 days, mm -hmm. we stroke a check out of the line of credit. We pay the credit card completely off. And it will get so simple, Brent, that our goal for our clients is we want you to, to experience simplicity at the level of only paying three bills a month, paying your HELOC, paying your credit card bill, paying your mortgage. And if you can get to that point where it's that simple, finances take, they're almost entirely automated. They don't take on the level of stress and complexity that most people have. And you'll start to see this massive debt reduction on either the student loans, car loans, credit cards, and then ultimately the mortgage, which then allows us to begin building wealth in short order. And we, we call this entire process a 10-year freedom plan. If someone's willing to invest 10 years in doing this, and it's sort of sequentially in phases, um, but certainly your listeners, if, if they're physicians making good money, two, 300,000 a year, um, even 150, you can be financially free in the next decade. But you, get, you just got to think differently, like you said before. I love the idea of using the credit card. You know, we do that with all our bills. Anything I can put on there, uh, go ahead and get points and build yep. them up. Uh, we love taking nice family vacations and being able to save those for those are, are fantastic. Um, so one thing that I think is interesting, kind of go back uh, to this from the, the the amount that you're putting into your checking account each month that's going yep. into the HELOC, is that just your expenses pretty much? Uh, or is so if you have, let's say, five thousand uh, dollars a month extra, that yep. you really want to put that towards some sort of investment, whether that's you know real estate or the market or whatever. Yep. Is that going out at the same time? So let's say let's say you make ten thousand just to keep it easy, and yep. I know my expenses are five thousand or less, so I move that into yep. the HELOC, other than a couple hundred bucks, and then the other five thousand I maybe moving into another account for investing, or do you pay right. all of that to the HELOC? In our model, you would pay it all to the HELOC, okay. and then be very strategic about where that investment goes. But this is you know getting we're getting a little in the weeds on the the line of credit itself, but a line of credit can only ever be zero or negative. Right. It will never have a surplus, right? So I want you to imagine it's like having a bucket that you have to, you have, to have room to put money in. And so if it's at zero and you have a deposit coming in, the line of credit isn't going to take it. Right. So if $5,000 is coming in in that discretionary income, and we know that we have to make room in that bucket, the software is going to tell you to send an amount, a lump sum amount, over and above what you're putting in. So it may be like $7,500, $7,800.
that you're going to send to something. And that could be student loans, could be to your mortgage, it could be to an investment. All of that's really you know, predicated on what your goals are. We help you to identify that. But if the goal is debt reduction, imagine how fast the debt is reduced if you're sending these big lump sum payments along the way. And in effect, you're just kind of taking a, an, an advance on future income, um, paying a, a small, insignificant amount of interest on it in exchange for paying off this amortized debt that has a significant amount of interest on it because you're in the red light years, if that makes sense. And I believe you've got a, a free masterclass you can check out too that goes into a little bit more detail and explanation about the shred method and kind of how that, that works. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah, the masterclass is at theshredmethod.com. And it's, it's really kind of a deep dive into how this method works and some of the, the outcomes that people are experiencing. I mean, we have folks that have paid off a home in, in less than two years and have gone on to build pretty tremendous wealth uh, you know, over the coming 24 to 36 months after that, because they have massive amounts of discretionary income, their expenses have been reduced to, to next to nothing relative to their income. And they figured out how to use this forward leverage mm -hmm. to get into some of the deals that we're talking about. And, and candidly, you know, for advisors, the shred method is kind of an advisor's best friend because you might, and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, Brent, but you might have clients that are, that are dollar cost averaging every month at 500 to 2000 or $5,000 a month, right? But what if some of these clients said, called you up and said, hey, Brent, I, I want to put 50 grand in an investment. Where should I put it? Or they call you and say, you know, we've got some leverage. We've got room on the line. We want to put 100 grand in something because we know it's going to be shredded in three months anyway. Where should we put it? And just know that three or four months later, we're going to do it again. These are the kinds of investments that many of our clients are making with, within you know, 24 to 36 months of using the shred method because they've created such freedom and flexibility in, uh, in the amount of discretionary income they've created. You know, as a reformed banker, I still love a line of credit. Just having the ability to have cash on hand should you need it. Yes. Um, yes. One of the things in life is that you never know when the next opportunity is going to come to you. That's right. Uh, and so being able to have kind of that bucket of money that's available, you know, it, let's say you have a $150,000 line, but you're only using yep. 75 of it. Well, that yep. gives you 75 that you have available to make that investment should it come up. And so whether that's, you know, real estate or syndicated offers or, or a number of different things, you, you've got the money sitting there and knowing yep. that, you know, yeah, I can make that investment and knowing a method to be able to pay it off. And so that, that just expands the amount of growth opportunity that you have on it. It's fantastic. Couldn't so agree more. I will say a lot of clients come to me and they have built up uh, super enormous emergency funds, right? So yeah. maybe they really only need 50,000, uh, but they haven't known where to invest. And so they've got 250 or 500 or a million dollars sitting yeah. in a high yield savings. So maybe they are earning three, 4% right now. Right. But what should they do with that? What, what would be yeah. your suggestions? Well, it's a very good question. Um, I, and first, before I answer that directly, let me say there, I think there is a distinction to be made between available money and accessible money. And so from the emergency fund perspective, and I would guess you're probably of this camp, there ought to be three to six or 12 months, somewhere in there, whatever you're comfortable with, 
that amount sitting on the sidelines in what I would call available money. You could go to a bank, a lender, you could pull out what you need. Now, the caveat, the asterisk on this comment is I think every single person out there needs to be hoarding some cash at home in the event that our debit or credit card system goes down because there is only enough currency in the United States. It would last maybe 18 hours. There'd be a run on banks and credit unions and the currency would be gone. So there's about enough in our, in our country right now for $1,200 for every man, woman, and child. And that's it. So at some point, keep a month, if you must, in cash at home in 20s. That gets a lot into, uh, into the money supply theory, which goes that, very deep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, I, and I'm, again, I'm super contrarian on a lot of things. That's one of those deals where it's like, I'd just be rather safe than sorry. Just make sure it's in your safe so your kids can't get to it. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of what should someone do if they have that much, I would say first, let's look at how much debt are you carrying? And does it make sense to have that much sitting on the sidelines at 4%, but be paying 7% on 200,000 in a student loan or a, a, you know, a mortgage or a business loan somewhere? Um, would it make sense to begin knocking some of that down? And or that amount of money put into a life insurance retirement plan, you know, a, a, a high equity cash value life insurance plan where you can borrow that money back out again, it becomes accessible money. That might be a, a strategy for a high income earning professional, because at some point the HELOC bucket is only going to be big enough. You're going to need an even bigger bucket to store your wealth. And that's what life insurance really satisfies for us and our clients. Um, because we're starting to write these big checks and we want something that has efficiency and has future growth potential, um, but also has lots of flexibility. We can borrow out anytime we want and use it for business expansion, paying for college tuition for our kids, buying a car if you need it, you know, going and getting a vacation home. All of that's there for you to use by using one of these programs. It's a very long-term play. So we would have a conversation about how consistent is your income and you know, um, how healthy are you? Let's make sure you've got disability income, uh, insurance protection. Um, but yeah, I would say an amount like that, my first go-to would be, let's talk about finding funding and high early cash value or high equity cash value life plan. And there's certainly some things, you know, to know from the tax standpoint of how those work. And so a lot of mm -hmm. times we say, you know, you probably want to talk with your CPA as well, but there's some yep. great tax benefits from life insurance. Uh, especially as you're looking to build wealth for a family, you know, there can be some great benefits both in cash value and in kind of you know, no cash value for those future generations. So Indeed. Love, love that idea. Um, and I know you're a big family man as well. So want to shift a little bit to that side. Sure. Talk sure. about, you know, what you've done. I know your TEDx talk is fantastic on being able to try to teach kids financial literacy. You know, how have you done that and, and what results have you seen so far? Yeah, thank you for bringing it up, Brent. Um, we'll always take more views on the TED Talk. It's at six, I don't know, six point two million or something like that right now. Um, and candidly, I'm I'm always shocked when I go and look at it just to see how how many more views there are and the comments that people make. It was a really super simple experiment that I did with my kids, and it was based on the idea that in our society today, money is not real. It's it's all bits and bytes, zeros and ones. People are transferring money in and out of Venmo. And I was talking to college students 
and I asked them a couple of really pointed questions. One was, how much do you have in your Venmo account? How many of you know to the penny how much it is? And maybe 20% of the room raised their hand. And they all agreed that once money goes in Venmo, it's kind of like, oh, it's just fun money. It's spending money. It's, I don't pay attention to it. That is, uh, that is money that is abstract. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a society where abstraction rules, right? I mean, companies are trying to create abstraction so that we spend more money. And what I mean by that is if uh, you go into a casino, you're not putting coins in machines anymore. You're using a card. You insert the card. You go to a, a, a Dave and Buster's. You're not putting dollars or tokens in a machine because that's like tangibly, oh gosh, I don't, do I really want to play this? It's a credit card swipe. Boop. You know, how many units is this game? I mean, your phone and watch even pay for stuff now. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd ask the college students the other question, which was, how much will you have in debt when you graduate? And they, most of them couldn't tell me. And so I'm watching my kids play Monopoly one day, and they were just kind of flippantly, errantly throwing money around. But I'm like, the money isn't real. And I started tying the two together. I want to make money very real for my kids because they're going to make very real money decisions soon. And so better to start when they're young than when they were old older, you know, teenage or beyond, because once they get out of the house, you have very little oversight or supervision on how they spend their money or what they're doing, you know, outside your protective bubble. And so what we started doing with this, um, this experiment, uh, first and foremost, I went and got $10,000 in cash and I played a cash game of Monopoly with my kids. So they got to actually hold US American currency. It feels very different. It feels very different. <laughs> and it, and it, the game is played differently when you're playing for real cash, we, we found. So from that, we decided that we were going to put money in our kids' hands and we were going to teach them how to make money decisions really intelligently, uh, very intentionally, very uh, goal-oriented money decisions based on the fact that it was real tangible money that was theirs to decide upon. And you know, long story short, it completely changed the way that my kids were raised around money and they are very money savvy teenagers and 20 somethings now. That's awesome. It's definitely one of the things that I think uh, we need more of is just, yeah, we try to involve our kids on, on certain decisions. Um, you know, when they got a switch, we told them, Hey, for that Nintendo switch, you all have to pay half of it. And the light bulb hits immediately. Oh, well, how are we going to make money? And so they start thinking yep. about all the different things that they could do. And can we do some extra chores around the house and you know, all the different yep. things uh, that, that come to mind as you're trying to, you know, earn as a you know, six, seven, eight year old. Yeah. And it was amazing that uh, it only took them about a month. And they came to us and said, hey, you know, we've got half the money for it. Uh, which awesome. I, I expected it to take a little longer, but it was also amazing to know that they have that entrepreneurial fortitude. And how are they going to use that to their advantage over time? And so yeah. that's what we've tried to continue to instill with just some basic uh, investment accounts for them so they can watch yep. that on a basis. So what things do you do for your kids? You know, obviously yours are teenagers and, and growing, but what things yep. have you done to be able to instill that as an ongoing thing for them? I would say there were probably five rules that we followed. Um, one was they got an allowance. The allowance was for chores done. It wasn't just a gimme. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know it, it takes energy and and uh, uh, human power to make our house run. So they got to clean, they got to fold laundry, they got to wash dishes. They're doing all the things that 
that that they're intended to do. Happy to hear that. She's been trying to get them more involved. Yeah, I mean, we had a chore chart that they had to check off every week, and if they didn't check them all off, they didn't get their allowance. That was how how you know uh, ritualed it was. And uh, so that's rule number one. They got to have money, and and they've got to be able to to expect it on an ongoing basis. And what you're doing, really, in the midst of that, Brent, um, probably goes without saying, but you're getting them used to receiving mm-hmm. for the work that's done. I didn't want to raise kids who are lazy and entitled. And I think some of the fo- the parents out there who, you know, just hand over money, maybe begrudgingly, but still just hand it over. You're going to create kids that that expect that if I want to go to a basketball or a baseball or a football game, dad, I need 20 bucks. But yeah, what have you done for it? And now there's this weird emotional stuff between us. Like you're trying to control me and I'm waving money. Like, did you do this? Did you, you know? And so what I wanted them to experience was having money and doing work to have money. So that was rule number one. Number two, we had a savings goal set for them and not just a savings goal, but an emergency fund goal. And so they had to have at least $300 in an emergency fund. And we called it an emergency fund um, by the age of five. So this was birthday money, Christmas money. And, and what it did was instead of where'd my money go and weirdness around grandma gave me $50 and I never saw it, which can create downstream effects for, you know, on the money psychology for kids, we would say, hey, listen, you're at 220. You need to get to 300. So how much of this 50 do you want to put in the bank? Uh, 40 of it. Okay, cool. Let's do that. And the next birthday, next birthday, et cetera. So they had some decision-making power, but by five, 300, by seven, 400, by nine, $500 in an emergency fund. And the reason we did that was CNN Money came out with a study that said that the average American family couldn't come up with $500 cash in the event of an emergency. So we, we and I looked at that as that's just habitual. That's just habit forming. Yeah. So that was rule number two, have a savings goal in place. Number three, everything that they received, 10% went to saving, 10% went to giving, 10% went to investing, and the rest was theirs to do with as they pleased. So we give them some power, but we're also habit forming around saving, giving, and investing. That was rule number three. Rule number four was we had a family 401k plan. So if you chose to put money in in the invest jar over and above your 10%, um, I would match it up to $25 a month. So my middle son, who's very strategic, he would take money out of his save jar or he'd find money somewhere that he had squirreled away and he would get to $25 just so I would match his $25 awesome. in investments. And I was happy to do it. But what I wanted to instill was when I invest money, I make money. And they had to get really intentional about that. And then the last rule, and this was a big one, um, was our intent was to limit or minimize um, impulse spending. And so if you're at Target with your kids and they see a Lego kit and it's 40 bucks and they have 20, you don't lend them 20. You know, you're not going to say, well, you can pay me back over time because you will, you will create a monster who at 18 gets their first credit you're card. You're their first credit card person, right? Totally. Totally. So we would say, oh, that's a bummer. You don't have enough money. Can I borrow it? Nope because I'm not a bank, um, but you can save money for this. So if you're making seven bucks a week or 10 bucks a week, how many more weeks are you going to have to save before you have enough money to spend on this? And it taught delayed gratification and they would get home. They'd be like, yeah, I really didn't want the Lego anyway. I just wanted it in the moment. Right. And so those five rules really were what we did at the core. 
there was a lot more stuff around. They bought their own phones. They pay for a majority of their first car. Um, you know, they're, they're paying for their own gas. We cover insurance. But, you know, there were certain guidelines or rules we had around that. We just wanted them experiencing what it's like to pay for stuff because they have to feel like there is a limited amount of funds at some point at that age. Otherwise, they'll think money is limitless because to a kid whose parent pays for everything, it is. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. And those are some great wealth building tips, I think, that they can pass along to their kids as well. And so you kind of perpetually keep that going. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Our hope is, and, and you know, I, one last rule that I will throw out there, Brent, is I always told my kids that you will have an MBA before you ever go to college. And the MBA stood for a massive bank account. And uh, we set a number, you know, they had to have 7,500 bucks set aside in their own account that was theirs to, to live on for future spending, to get into an apartment. You know, at some point it's a down payment on a car or a home. That's money that they're squirreling away. And I set numbers high, relatively high for the age, specifically because I don't want young people to think that 2000 or $5,000 or $10,000 is a lot of money. Like you don't have to think that's a ton of money to put away. The reason that most young people do is if mom and dad are really hesitant to give you any and you don't have any to set aside, how am I ever going to spend a hundred or save a hundred or let alone a thousand or more? Um, and I wanted my kids to go, no, it's pretty easy. I got to 500. I can get to a thousand. I got to a thousand. I can get to 2000. And it just kept you know, tracking from there. Yeah. It's certainly simplifying you know, the psychology of money. You're, right. you're allowing them to understand what that is as they, they go and build those habits. Uh, and certainly love, love that technique. I think it, it makes much more efficient young people. And so Indeed. I'm looking forward to, uh, to using a few of those on my kids as well. Nice. Well, Adam, it's been fantastic to talk to you, learn more about the shred method. Um, and certainly we'll have some links in, in the podcast to be able to talk a little bit more about that along with your TEDx talk. Uh, definitely recommend people who are raising young people to check that out. It's an awesome game. Thank you so much, Brent. Thanks for having me. Keep doing what you do. This is super, super important stuff. And I know it's helping people on a mass scale. So Absolutely. keep it up. Anything else you want to mention? Where can people find you? Uh, you know, the best place to find me and my work is adamcarroll.info. That's uh, two R's, two L's in my last name, adamcarroll.info. And then again, the shredmethod.com. We're posting there. We've got articles. There's a lot of great information on the site. Um, and, and then I'm active on Instagram which is just adam.carol. Uh, so feel free to follow or DM me there if you have any questions. Awesome. Appreciate it, Adam. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Brett. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Physician Financial Checkup Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a review. You can also find more information on brentboden.com. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as financial advice. The opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of any other individual or organization. You should carefully consider your investment objectives, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment decisions. If you are seeking financial advice, you should consult with a qualified financial advisor who can assess your individual circumstances and needs.